Hello, and welcome to Time Well Spent, a place where the most brilliant minds in the world take on the toughest questions in science, politics, technology, and much more. My guest today is the visionary economist and author Dan Klein of George Mason University. Dan has written cogently on many important topics, including groupthink in academia and the tendency for innovation to outrun government regulation. He also has a YouTube channel, which offers wisdom and insights from intellectual history listeners may appreciate. Most recently, Dan has released the book Smithian Morals, which will be the focus of our discussion today. Dan, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a classic quote from Wealth of Nations. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. Without additional context, it sounds like what really matters to Smith are financial incentives, and that cultivating personal virtue is not all that important. How would you reconcile that impression with your reading of Smith? Well, he's talking about a particular context there. When you go into 7-Eleven and buy, let's say, some bread, there's not that lively feeling of benevolence between the clerk and the customer. They might say hello or something, but it's it's more just common decency. Um, And so he's looking at particular sorts of uh, interactions there, rather in personal commercial interactions, talking about how that realm works. And that is by no means all that he treated. His first book uh, spoke very little directly about commerce and talked much more about a a person in society, in a community context, in a social context, where all of the virtues are explored, Um, not just the sort of prudence that you uh, might glean from from the quote you just read. So it sounds like um, you know you made reference to his first book. Uh, that's the theory of moral sentiments. Um, and if anything, that might be almost a foundation for some of his thoughts on economics. How, how would you relate the two to each other, where they connect? Yes, it's broader. Um, I sometimes speak of it as the larger umbrella under which the wealth of nations is, sits. Um, so the the wealth of nations is almost like an extension. I would say of it, it treats um, just sentiments um, in uh, the wealth of nations, treats just sentiments in matters of commerce, trade, pursuing honest income, and of government policy with respect to such things, and indeed government policy in general. So he's talking, he's, he's exploring there the proper beliefs of those activities and ideas and policies about those activities. So those are other objects for moral choice. And so he's teaching us how to be moral with respect to that part of our life and world, which is an important part of our culture, um, because commercial life and earning a living is a big part of your life. And because we care about the whole of society, it's one of the things that draws us together in common interests. And we need to think about those big issues properly. So he's teaching us propriety, a kind of moral concept, propriety, in thinking of those big questions and issues. Thank you. That's an excellent introduction. Um, Uh, Individual liberty is of central importance uh, as one of the virtues in Smith's moral philosophy. Yet he also acknowledges exceptions to this principle when he writes, those exertions of the natural liberty of a few individuals, which might endanger the security of the whole society, are and ought to be restrained by the laws of all governments. What lesson should libertarians in particular take from this insight? That the liberty principle is not an axiom that it's defeasible, which means to say that the burden of proof can be overcome. Um, You know, there's a presumption, I I would say, in Smith toward individual liberty, Um, just as, you know, in a courtroom, we have a presumption of innocence, but that doesn't mean that everybody's innocent. It means that the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And that's, in a sense, what Smith is doing. Someone who's prosecuting a case for government intervention has the burden of proof to bear. And um, 
Smith does make exceptions like he does there. That's about the small denomination notes restrictions that he endorsed kind of oddly, I'd say. But um, sometimes his um, exceptions puzzle me, to, to put it mildly. Um, but he does make exceptions and I and I endorse some of his exceptions and I would make exceptions. And so you get in Smith um, the, the, the very clearly, I, sh- I would say, the idea that exceptions don't destroy principlehood, if you will. Like a principle is not undone because there are, are exceptions to it. Life doesn't, you know, we need to develop principles that admit of exceptions. Because uh, if you try to do do things that are 100% without exceptions, you find you can't find very useful ones, or, or you'll force fit certain things which aren't really sound, and then they're brittle. Because if you're claiming them, they're 100%, and then someone throws a sound exception at you, it, it shatters, right? So really, your principles are more robust by allowing and acknowledging exceptions. They are presumptions. They are maxims not axioms. This makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think this is um, something I find really resonant in kind of your philosophy of economics compared to either kind of the rigid mathematized version that you see in, in a lot of um, economic journals. Um, and also, you know, as you've, you've pointed out in some of your writings, uh, Austrian economists also can be very axiomatic. Um, so, so it all makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and it resonates, but sometimes in practice, it's it's not as clear how how to actually pull this off. So I think COVID nineteen is a really good example of a situation where um, you know it's a really extraordinary circumstance, and there are a lot of potential justifications for making amendments to individual liberty, at least for some amount of time. But as you know, as we kind of saw over the course of the pandemic, there were a lot of abuses of of kind of those exceptions. Uh, what, how would you speak um, to that concern in the context of that specific example? Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, early on, I, you know, I became very concerned about those very issues right with the onset of the pandemic and all the news and panic about the pandemic. And I was pretty panicked, frankly. I was kind of the worry wart in our little household. My daughter was going out to cheerleading practice. Now, this was in Sweden, which was not closed down. And I was saying, no, I don't want you to go. And, and you know, I, I was in that state for some weeks. And then, and then I changed my thinking uh, quite dramatically uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, one and I wrote some things during that time. One and I wrote a piece about gee, how much are we ready to compromise? Um, one thing I said is that there are no absolute libertarians in foxholes, um, and that goes back to our point about exceptions and so on. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I do think that um, the precautionary principle has some merit, has some sound, something sound to it that you know when you're puzzled and you're worried about really catastrophic possibilities as we very much were in in the onset in March of 2020. Um, Yeah, I mean, and you you maybe should be take precautions. And what was it called? The Diamond Princess, the name of that ship. I mean, maybe if I were the mayor, I wouldn't have let those people off that ship. I mean, I like like I'd be ready to make some exceptions to the liberty principle. Um, But I do think that the COVID case turned out to be um, well overblown, actually, and that a lot of the restrictions on individual liberty were turned out to be completely unsound and counterproductive and highly destructive, I would say. So it's an interesting lesson. Um, in, In some ways, it teaches us the importance of serious presumptions for liberty because panics do come around opportunism and oppression comes around and we need we need these principles partly as checks um on on um you know expansive intrusive government and the ratchet effect which has clearly taken place in a dramatic way um, yeah, so, you know, it's both sides, you know, have their moments in the unfolding of these affairs. 
So if, if I were to push you just a little bit further, um, you know, we've learned all these things from the experience of this pandemic, but if we are thrown into an equally uncertain uh, situation tomorrow, and it was unclear just how contagious things were and um, just how bad uh, things could get at their worst, um, what would what would maybe your approach be like with, you know, keeping a mind to um, not limiting liberty more than well would be just or appropriate? Well, one thing that's important in, in these moment by moment deliberations and actions is you know, how much trust you have in the powers that be and the information and narrative providers, that trust has been shot to hell in the last three years. So right now, if anything comes along, like, I don't believe a word they say, essentially. (laughs) I mean, I need to see kind of like an asteroid darkening our sky at this point for me to start screaming about, oh, we need to like clamp down on liberty dramatically. Gotcha. Um, So moving on to the next question, in theory of moral sentiments, Smith suggests that man can subsist only in society and was fitted by nature to that situation for which he was made. What implications does this idea have in the context of rapid and at times alienating technological change? Um, I take your question to be that given that man's meaning is very socially immersed or socially embedded, if you like, um, if the social conditions are very rapidly changing, doesn't that jeopardize, upset man's tranquility and happiness? Smith saw tranquility as a very important element of happiness. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Yeah, and and I could I could maybe give a little bit more texture to my own experience. So sure, it's like um, I have you know very un- unusual interests, perhaps, but I see this happening with all of my peers to some extent, um, where it's it's less and less about kind of the local circumstances of your neighborhood and the local connections that that you have uh, to community, and it's easier and easier to silo into to very narrow groups where. I don't feel as attached or connected to the people who are physically around me um, the way that I used to. Um, and I wonder whether such a such a rapid social change and, and the way that we kind of just experience life, whether whether Smith would view that as as or or what in your view Smith would yeah. make of all that. He may may well feel that it's a bad development. Um, and you know, it may be a bad development in, in, at least in some respects, if not bad overall. Um, yeah, no, these are real, very, very serious and real issues. I don't, uh, it's technology is kind of oversold by a lot of people. Um, and this, this effect that it does have, on instincts about uh, propinquity, about, you know, geography, if you like, um, and the kind of duties that would be uh, that would that, that would be attached to some of those considerations, as well as other traditional things like family um, um, and past history together and so on uh, outside of the family, maybe your old neighborhood friends and so on. Uh, yeah, um, it's a real issue. And of course, technology also facilitates talking to your family members regularly um, and meeting and seeing their faces. I talked to I, my wife and daughter are Swedish and live in Sweden. I talk to my wife every day on FaceTime. And, um, you know, that, that's that's a kind of communion at a distance. So, yeah, it's 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 a very real issue. Um, and, and there's no easy answer. I don't think it does much to undermine the support for uh, classical liberalism, because I don't think the government has anything good to do. I don't think restrictions on liberty are going to help. I think the toothpaste is out of the tube. And I think Smith saw things that way, that the toothpaste was coming out of the tube, and there's no way to kind of force it back in, in any kind of wholesome manner. Uh, And so it's more about going with the flow and managing um, all these crazy developments. Um, 
my own view of of humankind is that we are, you know, our genes and our basic kind kind of instincts and so on, mentalities and pensions and bents come from the hunter gatherer band, um, which is wildly different than the modern world, and we are constantly having to, um, you know, adjust and temper and channel and subdue all sorts of things to, 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 to cope in the modern world. Um, and I think Smith actually had similar notions. He didn't make it altogether explicit, but so much of what he says dovetails with that view of man that um, I'm prepared to kind of suggest that. Yeah. I, th- I think you're, you made this point in one of your YouTube lectures that uh, Smith saw all of the, uh, ways in which uh, economic and technological advancement could upset society and create cultural churn that was uncomfortable in certain ways, but he still um, firmly believed that that on net um, they were a benefit to to human prosperity. Um, it, so it would, be, it would be interesting to to hear his take on that today, especially being able to talk maybe more more openly. Yeah, there's two on nets here. There's on net in the sense of, oh, given that historically these, you know, capabilities arose, were they on net beneficial developments? And then there's on net of could we do something to roll them back through government, you know, governmentalization of social affairs somehow, which would improve on net how things will otherwise go? given that these developments have arrived. And, 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 you know, as a liberal, I'm more interested in the latter on net. And I'm more concerned with, um, you know, getting it right there because we're not going to reverse history. And I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not wedded to saying that these developments are so wonderful on net. (laughs) I'm very worried and upset. I've written against designer babies. For example, I got into a dispute with uh, Brian, Kaplan and David Henderson over that, where I said, you know, designer babies is not necessarily a blessing at all. And And why do you say that? um, It's these kind of issues where it's going to, it could throw so much um, sort of contextualization of life, meaning of life, bearings, groundings, bases of comparison, connections to the past, connections to history um learning from previous human experience what to aspire for what to feel good and bad about um you know you can kind of just think of it in terms of you know sports and 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 steroids it's designer babies is like steroids on steroids (laughs) Um, yeah oh sorry go ahead no 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 you you go well i was gonna say um I mean, just from my very, you know, I haven't thought about this as much as you, obviously, but it seems like you could potentially go far enough in the direction of um, programming human beings or new human beings like like machines to the point where you devalue the autonomy of that new individual or you devalue um, the rights that, that such a person has, either either relative to their parents or, or to the government, because I'm sure government would be heavily involved in trying to regulate some of these things. Um, yes, I follow you. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think about designer babies to the point that somehow you're kind of undoing the basic nature of a soul, if you will. Um, so I think that, you know, even if I designed a babe, my baby and, it came into life it would still sort of have its own will its own soul and everything but you you have kind of and it, and it presumably will know that you have kind of chosen certain things and edited in certain directions in a in certain sense and so all of that might feel like a big incursion on autonomy at least and and smith um as well as hayek offer kind of a warning about overestimating what you're able to design and how much wisdom you have in doing that as well. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, So moving to a different kind of uh, variation, I guess, cross-cultural variation. Um, 
As the editor of Econ Journal Watch, uh, you have published articles investigating liberty within a wide variety of countries and cultures. What are the major lessons you've taken from that experience for promoting liberty in different contexts? Uh-huh. Okay, good question. Um, yeah, so you're re you're referring to our series, which has covered about 22, 23, going on 24 countries, uh, uh, classical liberalism in econ by country. It's really more just classical liberalism by country. We We ask for some emphasis on econ, but that's not really that central. And so, yeah, we've had authors from you know, all these very many countries tell us about the history, progress, current status, current uh, organizations, figures, activities of the classical liberal movements in those countries. Uh, and there's been a number of lessons. Um, um, well, one thing I learned was that it's harder to get papers about countries with huge histories like the United States or England because there's too much to write about. So we don't have some of the prime countries you might hope to read about. Uh, most of the countries uh, are a little bit smaller or just have less classical liberalism to write about. But anyhow, that's one thing. One thing I learned also is the significance of something analogous to the brain drain and that's the liberal drain, as I call it, which is to say that the liberals from India, from Venezuela, from uh, Eastern Europe, where what have you, they get out. They get out. They try to get out. I mean, just as anyone would. And um, that's a very significant variable or factor in in a lot of the stories, because a lot of the people then make their careers uh, in Britain or in the United States, uh, let's say they're from India, and um, and and in a sense, you've kind of deprived the 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 fight at home of somebody, um, just just kind of like the brain analogous to the brain drain. So I think the liberal drain is actually uh, something I learned from doing this project. Now, I can answer your question a little bit more broadly as well, um, and a little more deeply going into sort of political theory um, and, and, and so on. If, you know, these, first of all, it's about classical liberalism, and liberalism is generally this presumption of liberty, allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way, as Adam Smith put it, in policymaking. And that's all well and good. And you can, you know, wonderfully cite and learn from Bastiat about mutual gains from trade and explain that, gee, there's mutual gains, so let people trade, you know, and that's kind of like the major thing to say, freedom. And now, in a lot of these countries, there's a very, you know, politics in every country, politics is much more complicated than that. And politics is, first of all, directional from a status quo and the liberals want to move in a more liberal, less governmentalized direction. And politics is about lesser evil. It's about trying to keep the government from getting terribly bad. And so naturally, it's I think it's part of civic virtue for them to consider these, you know, the reality of politics on the ground in their country. And so being part of politics and making all the compromises, getting the votes and everything else gets very much mixed in with all of these liberal movements, including the intellectual efforts. So that's something I've learned in a significant way. I mean, it's not really new to me, but you see it so deeply. And when some countries, as opposed to America, which we might, you know, be have as a reference point, some of the politics is so bad and frightful that um, this becomes a rather dominating matter. Now, even when we talk about the lesser evil in terms of partisan politics within the context of a country, all that presupposes a certain level of political stability, of basic polity, okay? And sometimes the countries don't even have that presupposition in place. And so it's about you know, being a principality of Russia, for example, in the case of Finland, um, it's about foreign wars, it's about civil war, 
it's about all sorts of cultural tensions um, tr and old traditions and so on and so forth. And so the liberals sometimes get lost, you know, Bastiat's basic advice about, hey, let people make their voluntary trades. It's like you don't even know who you're saying that to. You know, you don't even know who it would be who is letting people. And I don't mean just this party or that party. I mean, like the whole structure of like government. And so that's another like in Venezuela. I mean, it's chaos now. And we have a piece on Venezuela. It's mainly a lament. Um, and so that's something else I learned. So just these deeper kind of polity issues that um, we tend to presuppose in this country, I think we're coming to presuppose them less as things go more crazy all the time. <laughs> um, but uh, those are, so those are some of the things I've learned from doing that. Part, part of what uh, you said um, struck me as interesting in context of um, recent things that have been, have been written and said by libertarians about politicians. Um, so a lot of times libertarians have the tendency to kind of devalue the entire process of politics itself and and they kind of don't it feels too messy to them or or um you know brian kaplan has a book um along the lines of all politicians are evil um and it sounds like part of what you're saying is that um you know by kind of getting a closer look at some of these countries and seeing just how messy things are on the ground that there's a real need for some of these some of these institutional details are for some of these activists and political actors that um, maybe do things in ways that are are not along the lines of what you might read in Bastiat or, or kind of very clean um, libertarian philosophy. Yeah, I think that's right. When Smith referred to that um, insidious and crafty animal, commonly known as the statesman or politician, I think he meant that even of the ones he liked, like his friend Edmund Burke, that as a politician or statesman, he is an insidious and crafty animal. And it's an insidious and crafty trade or work line of, you know, calling even that um, that politics is. And gosh, I hope there's more virtue rather than less virtue in politics. Um and, you know, what are we supposed to say about, uh, you know, the, the the people who have done so much good, like kind of a Margaret Thatcher? I mean, I think it's it's I mean, to throw her into the same bucket as all the regular politicians whom whom we justly, um, um, you know, dislike is, I think, a terrible, terrible injustice and ingratitude, actually. Um so, so yeah, I mean, like, like politics is part of civic virtue, you know, in um, this famous lecture uh, called The Liberty of the Ancients and the Liberty of the Moderns by uh, Benjamin Constant, where he said uh, the modern liberty is mainly about this individual liberty, allowing every man to pursue his own interest his own way. He said still ancient liberty um which had more to do with participation in in political life, he said is still like a major duty. And it's almost a danger that people are too focused on their modern liberty so that they neglect, you know, checking and improving the ancient liberty, which, you know, still calls to to, to everyone, I would say. It sounds like you're pushing back a little bit against the, common economist argument that um, people really shouldn't bother to vote just from an individual standpoint. Um, you know, one vote is not going to matter. And so you're better off not really investing in politics, even to that minimal uh, degree, unless you can really find an avenue that has clear, you know, obvious success. Would would you push back against that and, and say that it's important to vote anyway? Or what are your thoughts there? I would push back against it if somebody was really, really making a argument against voting uh, along the lines you just suggested, I'm not sure that I want to urge people to vote or, or or tell people that it's terribly important and a major part of their civic duty to vote. Um, 
I've I've I used to not vote, and now I do. I find myself voting in the regular elections. I think the Republicans are the lesser evil. We have a two-party system, and I believe that third parties are damaging to their own cause in a two-party system. So I vote Republican, um, but I'm not urging people to do it. Um, to, to kind of take your question and change it a little bit, Something that goes with um, the argument against voting is sort of this uh, pox on both their houses attitude that you get from a lot of libertarians. And part of the um, rationale for that attitude is there's not a dime's worth of difference. And I don't believe that. I do think there's a dime's worth of difference. (laughs) And I think that difference has been growing of late. Um, so, you know, like I said, politics is about the lesser evil and we do have a part of our responsibilities, uh, I would say, and, 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 you know, this, this part varies person by person. I'm not saying it ought to be like a big thing or you need to vote or you need to even think about these things, but you always have competing responsibilities. And you so have competing responsibilities, and some people are, in some sense, have comparative advantages to focus on other responsibilities, and so on and so forth. And then, but um, yeah, that that you know, uh, the lesser evil. I look, look, if the lesser evil isn't um, supported, we get the greater evil. Um. And this is just part, this is, yeah, I don't think this is really news to people, but yeah, some of the argumentation tends to kind of um, elide this kind of, you know, basic intuition. Gotcha. Let's try playing a game of overrated, underrated, uh, starting with various strains of libertarianism that have been popular during my lifetime. Um, I'll just do these kind of rapid fire. And then at the, you know, once I've finished, uh, the list you can give kind of your, your short form case for conservative liberal, liberalism, which is in your, in your view, uh, the best of them all. So Elijah, first, yeah. Can you tell me by whom? Uh, sure. I'll say, um, well, let's think of it from the perspective of people who uh, could conceivably be attracted to some form of libertarianism and they're trying to, um, you know, uh, huh. way off the, you know, benefits and costs uh, of those. And so uh-huh. um, I was going to start with the Chicago School of Economics. And um, you could say whether, you know, among libertarians or libertarian adjacent people. How about, how about this? Uh, how about if you just oh, sure. bring up the topic and I'll tell you something I think about it? Sure, that works. Sure. Um, the Chicago School of Economics. Um, yeah, I love... Ronald Coase. I love Milton Friedman. I love uh, a number of other people who are associated with um, Chicago. Um, I, 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 I am pretty high on Gary Becker. George Stigler, I have a much bigger problem with. Um, it's, you know, it's it's significant and there is a cluster there. There's also the older, there's Knight and Viner and Simons. Um yeah, I, I mean I mean, you know, I don't know, it's a mixed bag. I could tell you, I could tell you <laughs> I don't know, I'm not good at this. I don't like this kind of glib, quick, overrated, <laughs> underrated, frankly. I could tell you quite a bit of what I think about Coast, but let's not get into that. Um <laughs> I want to write more about Coase, actually, but well, give me your next one. Sure. What are your thoughts on uh, Silicon Valley libertarianism? Um, so oh, the kind of thing you... Oh, go ahead. I don't even... I'm not even sure I know what that means. Um, so think like of who? like Balaji Srinivasan, Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen. Um, I, I think... don't know much about those guys. I see. I watch some of Peter Thiel on YouTube. I think he's quite good. Um, I don't know what else to say. I don't, I don't get why all this excitement about Rene Girard. Um, I mean, he doesn't seem bad, but I don't really, I don't, I can't say I haven't, I haven't delved into it, but anyhow, next. 
Okay. Um, well, maybe this will be the last one. Um, state capacity libertarianism. Uh, that's like an t- expression Tyler Cowen brought up. I don't take it seriously. Um, I don't know what it means, really. I don't know why it would be a good word for whatever it means. I don't really like the expression state capacity to begin with. I don't know why, if you want to try to get to some better outlook, you want to particularly use the word libertarianism. So on the whole, uh, uh, not crazy, you know, I don't see much there that's of merit. Gotcha. Uh, what academic activist or public intellectual is making the most positive influence for conservative liberalism over and beyond what is commonly recognized? And um, and since I don't think you've um, given your take on that just yet, you can overview. Who, which academic public intellectual is doing the best thing for conservative liberalism? That's oh, easy. Just, oh, who That's is it? Jordan Peterson. And why is that? Uh, he fits your description. He's got a huge impact. And I think basically what he says is very good uh, and, 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 and even great. Um, I don't. Yeah, there's minor things I could carp on, but perhaps. But basically, you know, I think he's a phenomenon. And what do you think makes him so great? Why is he able to do more than I don't know? Many others right. are not. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he's really quite extraordinarily gifted. Um, he's gotten a bit, he's, first of all, he's got an extraordinary range of knowledge. Uh, I've been listening to some of his interviews and I'm very impressed with how much he knows about, um, the, the fields that he is, his guests work in some, you know, often, uh, I have to say though, Jordan, if you're listening, you have a little, you got to, when you're an interviewer, you got to realize you're not being interviewed. So you got to let your guest be more like the guest. Um, but but apart from that, you know, that's fine because it's almost like a charming, you know, foible uh, because it, he's so vi- he's so vital in his thinking. Um, and you feel you've, you he's man thinking. You can kind of feel him thinking. He's not just replaying. I mean, sometimes he does repeat himself, certainly. But um, still, he's um, we all repeat ourselves, of course, especially if you got social media going and all that. But anyway, I'm I'm very impressed with Jordan Peterson. I, I think that you key into something really big about the appeal there with saying that his foibles are almost endearing. I know that, um, I mean, I think that's a that's a huge part of, of what he does to the point where even when he had major health challenges uh, related even to some mistakes that he made, um, it was very relatable to, to things that I had experienced or that people that I know have experienced. And um, there's a certain kind of authenticity in that that is, I think, hard to fake. Yeah, yeah. I think he's quite open and frank in his, uh, you know, communications, his discourse. Um, so you, it's clear to me now that uh, the concept of doing overrated, underrated is is really <laughs> yeah, overrated. To yeah, you. so uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, by some people humor me with this one. Um, was Tyler Cowen overrated or underrated as a roommate? How did that differ from what you expected? <laughs> You know, uh, I, knowing him uh, even beforehand. Um, again, it's by whom? I mean, um, we got on great as roommates. Um, we, I mean, we were roommates when we were undergraduates at George Mason. And those were great, great years. Um, and we certainly got along fine as roommates and friends and everything. So, so there was no, there was no problem at all is in his roommating what's something you learned about him that would be hard to learn without living with him um i don't know um i don't know just the reading habits the like tremendous amount of material he he deals with um, I mean, it's obvious from the blog, but you, in a sense, seeing it like in the living room just somehow still makes like a big impression. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I, yeah. I remember uh, reading somewhere that that you were actually not a particularly big reader when you first met Tyler Cowen. 
Um, what influence did he have on your, the reading habits that, that you took up? Do you, what would you look like in a world where you hadn't met him from, you know, just in that one narrow aspect? Yeah, he, uh, I guess a little bit, well, I had met him earlier. Um, I, I, I mean, we met in, uh, we were in the same eighth grade class and we had met incidentally before that. And we became friends in eighth grade, but he didn't get me into the free market stuff and politics and stuff until really, say, sophomore year in high school. I went away for my junior year of high school. I went away to a boarding school. And that also, you know, made me a little bit more oriented towards reading, perhaps. Uh, But then I kind of clicked in with all of this libertarian type of stuff starting up with Tyler. Um, So, yeah, no, I just, I just fell into it and got into it. Yeah. Then I don't know if that is. I I had a, a college teacher actually who would read, he would have all of the students, um, suggest a book and he would read all of the student suggestions within the semester for all of the sections that he was teaching. Mm-hmm. And before that happened, I actually I had kind of fallen out of reading. And, and so I, I kind of just was, uh, resonating with, with that, um, you know, and maybe projecting my own experience onto, onto some of your interactions with Tyler from that perspective. Um, so, so I'd like to close, uh, by delving a little deeper, um, into one section that really stood out to me from theory of moral sentiments while I was preparing for this interview. Um, it's from part two, about halfway through um, that section. And Smith suggests that there are some crimes that are difficult to punish because they don't immediately or directly hurt anyone. Uh, he tells a story about a guard who falls asleep during his watch and is sentenced to death for putting the entire army at risk. Um, are you familiar with this passage? Sure. Um, and so the logic of the penalty is clear, and it seems like Smith um, accepts the, the basic premise here. But then he says something interesting. He says, though such carelessness appears very blamable, a man of humanity must recollect himself, must make an effort and exert his whole firmness and resolution before he can bring himself either to inflict it or to go along with it when it is afflicted by others. Uh, this to me seems to be... Um, I mean, if you kind of take it at face value, he seems to be suggesting that to carry out justice here, you have to go against the impartial spectator, which is Smith's moral guide uh, throughout this book. How do you interpret what, what Smith is is arguing here? Um, that I, Yeah, I think what he's saying is um, that you see the sentinel falls asleep during his watch. And there's a standing rule in the military that if you fall asleep, if you're caught falling asleep on your watch, you are put to death. And so the guy fell asleep. He was caught. Nothing happened while he was sleeping. So no harm in the moment came to anybody. And Consequences play a very significant role for Smith. Uh, He says our sentiments are greatly affected by perceived consequences of things, and we see no ill consequences of his having fallen asleep. And so it kind of seems like, you know, no fault, no foul. Why should we kill this guy? Um, But in fact, he favors killing the guy, Smith does. And I would say he Smith feels he has the impartial spectators agreement or approval in supporting the death penalty because um, you got to see the larger consequences of letting the discipline, you know, go, go flabby, right. Uh, Go lax. Um, So it's about kind of, first impressions and thinking deeper, if you like, in this case, kind of a thinking fast and thinking slow distinction, where certain immediate feelings of propriety make it feel like um, the death penalty is not in order and overly severe and all that. 
Um, but this is the responsibility of a, you know, a serious disciplined army is to maintain such, uh, such disciplines. So it's something along those lines. Um, that's interesting. It's, uh, I, I think that certainly seems to be the surface reading. Um, but I'm not sure that I agree. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because, give, me your esoter- give me your esoteric reading. Right. So, so yeah, if I can be just a little bit Straussian, I, I see Smith um, suggesting that the impartial spectator is correct here. There are instances throughout moral sentiments. Um, I, ha- I haven't read all of it yet, but um, there are instances where he makes exceptions, but it seems to be generally when those exceptions are made, the impartial spectator is, is wrong through some personal defect of, of the individual's character. And when Smith says a man of humanity has to recollect himself and basically force himself to go against the impartial spectator here. I think he's kind of suggesting that, um, I think he's suggesting that this is not one of those cases where the impartial spectator is wrong. I think, I think he's suggesting that um, there's an important counterbalance to justice um, that may have some weight in this case. And that even, even if there may be cases where um nothing observable is done to harm an individual person um, that still require a a punishment, that those cases should be very few and far between, and that we should be hesitant uh, to, uh, to go against the kind of the common kind of the, the um, enlightened intuition here. I think this is strengthened by uh, just a few paragraphs later in the original editions of, of Adams of um, theory of moral sentiments. Uh, this was um, even more the case, but he makes kind of a digression where he starts talking about uh, the mercy of God and and the limits of justice uh, and the need for an atonement. Um, and it seems to me like um, he may be suggesting that there's a role for kind of mercy to escape the bounds of justice in this situation. Um, what do you make of that uh, esoteric reading? Um, I interesting and a lot about it i think i like um some of the way you put it i mean one thing at issue here is the multiple meanings of the expression impartial spectator i'm not sure you what you're thinking it was quite what i was thinking um it seems like maybe what you were thinking was conscience the guy's conscience uh someone's conscience and and that is one meaning but uh, there's the supreme impartial spectator um, and that the, the conscience is not necessarily a faithful or accurate representative of that supreme sense of the impartial spectator. That supreme sense you could think of along the lines as God. Um, so certainly you're... Um, when you're saying the impartial spectator could be wrong, Smith would certainly say that your conscience could be wrong, certainly, uh, but he would never say that God could be wrong. And I'm not sure if you were ever implying that, but th- but God is kind of right by definition. <laughs> the supreme impartial spectator is right by definition. That's just part of the way things are organized in his ethics and in benevolent monotheism generally. Um so, but but then what you're saying, and that there are, like we've been saying, exceptions and you know leniencies and mercy. I don't deny all that, but I, I never I never read the sentinel passages as him subtly suggesting that maybe um, the death penalty there was improper. But you no, seem to be I, suggesting I, that. I, I don't think he's suggesting it's generally improper. Um, he he makes a clear distinction between. Um, putting the guard to death who has fallen asleep through, you know, his human frailty, and then nothing has actually directly mm-hmm. come of it. And he says, in contrast, um, you know, it's natural for us to be uh, vengeful towards someone who has outright committed an unjust murder, for example, and that if that person is set free from prison without um, truly being punished, that that is a great injustice. And so I think he's he's definitely he's taking a very nuanced position here, in my view. Um, he mm-hmm. would affirm the death penalty in certain cases, um, maybe even the majority of of 
you know, of cases, but, but in this particular case, he seems to be carving out a little bit of space, um, for what I would call the mercy of God. And, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, um, uh, Smith doesn't talk of God as being, uh, at least in explicit terms, he, he doesn't talk of God as being incorrect, uh, when he invokes him, uh, throughout the book. Um, and a lot of the things that he, you know, re- he has God saying in this, this long section that the, um, this long passage that the section ends with that was cut out, um, just before the seventh edition, I think. Sixth. Um, uh, oh, sorry, excuse me. Sixth. Um, he, a lot of the things in that section, um, seem right in line with kind of classic insights from Adam Smith. So he says, the doctrines of revelation teach us how little we can depend upon the imperfection of our own virtue, uh, which is related to this idea that we, we need the invisible hand to, um, to direct our imperfect acts, our selfish acts, our acts that are not really motivated by benevolence most of the time uh, to serve the greater good of the whole. And I, I think that, um, you know, particularly that it's, you know, you, you, make a point in Smithian morals in the, in the essay about um, the invisible hand, how Adam Smith placed that reference uh, dead in the center of, of his works to, to highlight it uh, in a way that was maybe not entirely obvious to people who weren't reading closely. And I, I wonder, he does kind of a similar thing here where it's in the middle of, uh, of part two rather than the overall work, but it's kind of right in the middle there. And it seems Mm -hmm. to suggest a lot of kind of deep points um, that he may not have, um, you know, he may not have felt uh, totally comfortable going into uh, in other places in the work. Mm -hmm. I can see you got a taste for esoteric reading. Yeah. Uh, I've I've written several uh, posts about it. Oh, really? Good. It's kind of rare, but I'm glad to see some young people getting into it. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I I really appreciate your willingness to to come and have this very kind of nerdy and um <laughs> wide-ranging conversation about about morality and economics and and religion um I I really appreciate the the book you wrote because it 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 helped me to get deeper into theory of moral sentiments and and connect some of the things that that maybe I wouldn't have understood as well from um you know from trying uh, on my own and so um, I hope that people who listen to this will will take a look. It's available as a free download via the Fraser Institute, which we'll link to. And it's the first of three volumes that you're working on. Is, is there anything you'd like to, to add about uh, the forthcoming volumes or other things you're working on? Um, no, I don't know. You, you know, you covered it pretty well. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful for this conversation. I've enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to hearing your future esoteric readings. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, likewise, um, appreciate you and hope you have a great day. Likewise. Thanks a lot.